Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. How have you been, mate? Great. Awesome. Beautiful. Wonderful. Yep. Well, it's been raining other than that. Uh, but today is a bright and sunny day. Other than that, it's been a good season, good time. Have you have you been out and about since coming oh, out of lockdown? Don't ask me about my freedom adventures because yeah. I had just forgotten how good traffic is when everything was like, oh, I was thinking we should go back to lockdown. <laughs> so I have a small, uh, I guess I'll winch online and live, you know. Um, so we drove to Wollongong, which is uh, not too far from here, uh, just to make it clear to people that, you know, it's still within the greater Sydney area. Uh, um, and man, the place was packed. The, the place was packed as in you couldn't find parking. Like it takes you half an hour to drive there and then takes you half an hour to find parking. Like, you know, really, like, I mean, that's too much. Um, what now, would it have been if you were in lockdown type traffic? Well, if we're, if we're in lockdown and we were not going there, that, you know, we couldn't go there if we were in lockdown. Of course. But maybe the, every should, everything should be locked down, but I should be allowed to travel. <laughs> Looking get some parking somewhere. It was just, it was busier than usual. Uh, I guess everybody thought, you know, we need to be somewhere and we're out and about, which I can understand the sentiment, but man, traffic was crazy. The other thing that's back really big time is tailgating. Oh, okay. People are tailgating my Tesla. I just don't understand that. That's, um, yeah, well, I, yeah, I haven't experienced that in a while because I, I was actually, filling up at the Bowser the other day. And I, was, I realized it was like the first time in months that I filled up. I only noticed because it was $1.85 at the, at the pump. I was like, geez, this is expensive. But there's just been no one on the roads, right? So yep. there's been no reason to tailgate or to kind of usher people along. Well, right, right now, everybody's on the road, right? That's it. Um, and how about work-wise? How, what have you been working on the past week? Well, no, cooking some recommendations, looking at some recommendations, looking at stocks, it's been exciting times. Um, yeah, just going through my work, watch list and uh, well, the number of companies that I had recommended, um, they had, uh, you know, some companies had some interesting earnings releases, uh, so that was good. Um, you know, some secondaries, some companies did, which was interesting. Oh, what else happened? Uh, I had a, another double of a recommendation that I had made in May. So, you know, I'm not trying to say that. You know, I'm a sh <laughs> it's becoming, a, I almost think it's a problem if, if you make a recommendation that is, you know, in May and it doubles between us so only five months and never make a recommendation thinking it's going to double in like six months or a year. Mm. But uh, I'll take it when it happens and be happy I'm sure about subscribers it. love it. Oh, but, you know, here's the thing, right? If you're trying to build a position, you don't want that to happen. <laughs> <laughs> right it, it's counterintuitive counterproductive uh if you want your position you know you increase your position you i guess it, maybe what has happened is your position is automatically doubled you don't have to put any money in but your position doubled but if you wanted to make it more than that and you know now you have to pay a higher price right so i don't know Th those are those are the things that have been happening mm -hmm. some earnings earnings releases and things like that so it's fun times hmm. how about you what's going on 
Are you out of lockdown is the number one question. Today, October 22nd. Yeah, we are out of lockdown, which means that we can go out, but it doesn't, you know, we don't have full liberties. We can't go into many retail stores or anything like that. Um, but we can be seated outside, I believe, for food and limited seats inside. So we're heading in, into town tonight. Uh, we're about an hour outside of Melbourne. And so we're heading into town tonight to go to a restaurant. I think everything is getting really busy. So uh, naturally, I, I was I was riding around my area. I'm just back onto the hills here behind me, and um, I, I was riding around my area, and I noticed all of the local restaurants and cafes had, had tradies outside, uh, fixing up, you know, the outdoor seating arrangements and whatever, um, so they can accommodate the influx of people. And it's just great to see people out preparing for that. Um, for the businesses preparing too. So um, yeah, just really positive seeing that stuff. But in the last week, I've, I've spent a bit of time um, with, we, we released a podcast this week with Kate, Kate Morris from um, Adore Beauty. She's the founder of Adore Beauty. So um, that's a $450 million business now. And, and she started it probably five, somewhere between five and 10 years before the internet actually arrived. And Adore Beauty is a fully online um basically skincare company where you can go and you can get basically whatever you want from them. Um, and so we talked about the trials and tribulations of that and being early to a market, um, which is really fascinating. And then um, over on our other podcast, the Australian finance podcast, we took a look at Fortescue metals and um, we just dived into the really popular topic at the moment, which is IPOs and basically who does what in the IPO zoo. So, you know, what do, what do investment bankers do and, what do underwriters do? And we talked about all those different kind of facets of an IPO process. So that was pretty interesting. But other than that, we've got some company news. Um, we've we've seen like not a company that we've recommended, but we'll talk about it today, which is Magellan Financial Group. Uh, we've, we, we saw um, a class action being announced uh, against Tyro Payments, which is the terminal payments company here yeah. in Australia. Um, and so a few other things, and we've, we've obviously seen um, a lot of small caps come out with AGMs and, and quarterlies or, or, or AGM, sorry. Um, so that's been really interesting too. Um, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the quarterlies that I've been, de- oh, no, sorry, quarterlies, AGMs that I've been dealing with. Um, if you just go to the the chairman and CEO's address and they, they issue that to the ASX, they've been very, very simple, but kind of promising. Like here's, here's in two paragraphs, here's how we've been going and things are good, you know, an updated outlook. And, um, yeah, I've been pretty, it's been pretty reassuring to see, see some of the companies um, doing well. And I think a company that we spoke about on the podcast uh, a while ago, I don't know, if, I don't think you and I have spoken about it, but a company called Playside Studios. Uh, this is a company that does video games. It's a uh-huh. video game developer here in Australia. Uh-huh. That's been doing really well lately from a, from a share market perspective. So uh, it's been some good results out and um, some good updates. So uh, yeah, it's just been really busy. We, um, we've got a few companies to talk about today. We've got a lot of US companies, um, and I know uh, our, one of our flag favorites um, is, is Tesla on the show, so I know you've got a bit to say on that. Another thing is um, we're not going to talk about it, but just by saying I'm not going to talk about it, we're talking about it, which is just Apple obviously came out with its new product this week, um, basically revamped MacBook Pro range, so really exciting. Um, maybe in a few weeks, you'll see me recording on a MacBook Pro, but uh, yeah. Um, I, had, I don't know I what you're 
I was going to say that, you know, um, so there's some really cool stuff. I actually haven't finished listening to the, the M1 presentation from uh, Johnny, um, but uh, I took a couple of things. I made some jokes on Twitter. It's only Apple that can release new HomePods minis in different colors, exactly the same thing and call it innovation. They yeah. actually had a segment on the entire thing. It was a short segment, three, four minutes, but they had one about the different colors and how it's going to work for the home. I think that that is the mark of a company whose brand is that high. And here's the other thing. They released a cloth uh, for cleaning stuff, I guess, for $25. You can't get one now. It's like it's backed up. <laughs> it's like you have to back order for the cloth. So imagine the margin on this microfiber cloth, probably retails, you know, they probably source it for like 50 cents or something. You're selling it or maybe $1 if I'm being generous and they're selling it for 19. And that's, you know, yeah, that's so the, I'm calling the cloth, the new, um, uh, the dongles, the replacement of the dongles. Yeah. <laughs> Soon you won't, when you get your iMac, you won't have the uh, the little cleaning cloth for your screen anymore. It would just be, you have to buy that separately as well. And they'll probably change the the adaptability of it every year. So you have to buy another one. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, it's it's been a busy week on the tech front uh, in particular in the US. I know there are a few things that you want to talk about. The first one is uh, Tesla. We mentioned it, I think it was last week or the week before because they came out with deliveries before they come out with the quarterly. And um, now we've got the quarterly. So um, I guess we can we can just dive straight into that. Um, you know, how did it, how did you find it? How did the market find it? What are some green shoots and and other things? So the rest of the show is all going to be now Tesla, right? <laughs> so yeah, all you like you know, the Tesla Q people, you can just leave the Tesla bull people. You can just stay. <laughs> and and then, then, then there we go. Um, yeah, so it was, a, it was a fantastic quarter, uh, like just fantastic. It was. And there are a couple of interesting things. I'll start with the, with the nuggets that I think are interesting. Elon Musk did not show up as promised on the call. And Zach Kirkhorn, who's the CFO, he spoke like he's the CEO. <laughs> okay. it, this, his guy is so clear. So with clarity, he answers even those questions that are ridiculing Tesla. Those are the analysts who asked them about, okay, it's good to see that Tesla has a team behind it. Of course, Tesla has a team behind it. It's not a one-man show. La, 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 la. But, you know, he handled that question with uh, a lot of poise and grace. Um, yeah, it was, it was fascinating to see Zach Kirkhorn manage the show. It almost, you know, almost seems like they're preparing him to be take over as like, you know, maybe COO. Um, and uh, mm -hmm. he, he'd do a fantastic, he, he does a very good job of explaining everything. He understands the long term, understands the short term, and very good with numbers. And he's a young guy. Um, so that was fascinating part of the conversation. They also had two other execs um, on, on the call, but no Elon, which means we didn't have any ramblings and bumblings and any predictions. And that's a boneheaded question, things like that. So there's no drama, which was the <laughs> drama-less call, um, but nonetheless. So that was, that was the, I think one big highlight. Um, I think it was good. It's a good change. Um, here's the number one thing that I, I took away is that the gross margin of the automotive side of the business is now at 30.5%. Okay. Mm. Uh, other than Porsche, uh, uh, Ferrari, whose gross margin is 50%, as you would expect, I don't think anybody else has this kind of gross margin now. Um, it, and I think, you know, the margins are probably going to go up because they still have, you know, it's still in the ramp up phase. So there's a lot of cost that they're going to be absorbing 
Um, there's a lot of costs that they're still trying to absorb because of the ramp up, right? So I think they'll, as the ramp up happens, they'll get this, you know, uh, cost absorption happening, which would mean that I think the gross margin is going to go up even further. So this is very, very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I, number two I thing that... Uh, I, oh yeah, sorry, yes, go. No, 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 go ahead. Tell me. I was just going to say, I was probably jumping ahead of you, is um, basically the free cash flow as a result of that margin expansion. It's huge. Yeah, the free cash flow, well, yeah, went up. But what also went up along with that is their, their, their spending on CapEx. So the CapEx spending actually went up to $1.8 billion, which reduced the free cash flow, I think, to only $1.3 billion or something like that, right? Um, mm. But... I like to watch the adjusted EBITDA number because that sort of is telling me sort of how profitable the company can be. Um, and that number grew 77% to 3.2 billion. And the margin on that was like 23%. So that is really, really uh, um, fantastic, I think. Um, the other cool thing is that people like to talk about Tesla as a car and automotive company. It's mostly producing automotive. Actually, they're not even recognizing much of their... Uh, uh, software revenue because they think that they can't yet recognize it. Um, so it's all getting added to a deferred revenue uh, part, which is basically a liability, right? But what is interesting is that they took the opportunity of the, all the free cash flow that they're generating to pay down high interest rate debt. So their net cash position now is about $14 billion. That's very unautomotive-like and very tech-like to have a net cash position in tens of billions of dollars. And as, as we just have noted, uh, you know, that they're adding about a billion plus easily in free cash flow each quarter and likely to go up as the volumes go up, right? So, um, you know, they just at that cash um, generative machine standpoint. The other thing I was going to say is, and this is a comment again uh, that uh, Kirkhorn made in the call. They said that they were sort of taken aback with a the desirability of electric vehicles. And this is from a demand point of view, and just the need, the people's desire to buy a Tesla. And what he was saying is, as more Teslas are on the road, they just sort of become the marketing machine in itself. Um, so this is this is fascinating coming from Tesla. You know, they're the guys who are producing these vehicles. They're trying to grow as fast as they can. And they're saying that there's so much demand that in some places we have a huge backlog. Um, I mean, we can't build factories fast enough. We can't source batteries fast enough. Um, I think that's, that's a really, really interesting position to take. Um, one more thing, and I'll keep the last one um, for the, or a couple of other things. So, you know, people like to talk about about you know how okay fine it's all you know so now the bear story has changed the bear story was previously this stock is going to zero this company is going bankrupt and now this company is overvalued because that's kind of like the last uh clutch uh or last mm -hmm. straw that you can have but you could do a you know like a, here's a very rough of the envelope uh back of the envelope sort of calculation right so look at the non-gap earnings uh so non-gap eps the non-gap eps about is about five dollars right now which means after the share price bump it's probably trading at somewhere under 200 times earnings. Now that sounds huge, 200 times earnings. But I'll mm. point a couple of things out. There are many companies that don't even have any earnings. <laughs> Their PE is infinity, right? Um, a, a lot of SaaS stocks, for example, would look really expensive if you applied a PE metric to it. But the way I sort of look at a PE metric, if you want to make it very simple, is to think about how quickly um earnings are growing right so earnings this quarter jumped about 150 percent 
So basically mm-hmm. the earnings are growing that quickly because of leverage in the business, uh, underlying leverage in the business. So you're paying for businesses growing sort of at 100% plus its earnings about 200 times earnings. That the multiple will shrink very quickly if the stock price doesn't keep up with it, right? So if the stock price were to stay stagnant, the next year, the earning would be $10 <laughs> from $5 potentially, right? And, and and then the multiple would basically fall in half, right? And then you can put your, and, and this seems outlandish, but their, their goal is to grow at 50% per annum on average. Uh, now that might not translate into uh, 50% um, uh, earnings growth actually might trans- uh, translate into higher or lower depends on what the ASPs are. So ASP being average selling price. Then the, the last thing I want to talk about is, or oh, second last thing, is they highlight a couple of things. So they've done this insurance telematics product that they've launched in uh, in Texas. So insurance telematics means to give insurance based on driving record. So they've launched this thing called uh, driver safety points. So basically you get points based on how good or bad a driver you are based on the data that they're collecting. Based on that, they can offer their own insurance. So this is this is an idea that has been talked about a lot in the past, but really people, the insurance companies never really had control over the data that's being collected in the car, right? You'd have to install a separate device or another piece of hardware mm-hmm. and things like that. But here Tesla is collecting so much sensor data that it can actually offer the insurance, right? Um, so, you know, the company has its pie in insurance, has its fingers in on autonomy, has its fingers in, and we're not even talking about the energy component, has its fingers on AI and so many other things. So there's, there's a lot of upside, raw upside from all these other things that uh, the company is doing. So that might justify the price. Um, the last thing, which I think this is interesting, this is around, uh, so there's a, lot, there's a lot of talk about inflation, right? So there's pressure. There's pricing pressure on all sorts of commodities and Tesla has been working really hard, you know, with their engineering team, changing firmware, changing chips, things like that, changing the software. The the pressure of raw material costs, this is an interesting one because being the largest EV producer, they have sort of signed long-term deals, right? And because they have a pipeline of factories, they can continue to sign long-term deals that probably gives them an advantage in terms of pricing negotiations and how much of the price increase of raw material do they absorb, right? But if you are a new EV player, this is probably the worst point to be starting because you know there's price fluctuations, the prices are high, and you really it's a hard problem to have if you are a new EV player or if you're a legacy player trying to transition because your costs are going to be high. And you, if you're a legacy player, you have to sacrifice your profitable legacy business into this unprofitable business, which is with a much higher price point because you don't have scale. So it's one of those things where, you know, they sort of have hits sort of escape velocity. So they are fine, but the others are in, in not in a good situation. So uh, that I thought was an interesting comment. They didn't put it this way, but I am, I'm saying that I think, you know, the cost structure of various things and Tesla's ability to sort of lock contracts over long term is a big advantage that they've got, plus the vertical integration in terms of the uh, the sales uh, that they're making for themselves, right? That again puts them at a, at a significant advantage over others. So really, really interesting overall. Mm. Was there, so was there anything that kind of, swayed your conviction in the company after all that? No, but I've always had a very high conviction in this this company. Um, uh, I mean, you know, 
the the risk always remains that there's a lot of vision in this company that is driven by one man, or at least it seems like it's driven by one person. And, and that is always a problem because if that one person is to leave or something happens, then there's a big, mm. there's a big factor, right? But the question really is how much of the roadmap has been, you know, road companies design things and they have a roadmap of it built. Typically good companies would have a roadmap that goes into, you know, at least five plus years, right? Um, and you know, a good example would be the Cybertruck or the Semi. They have been designed and they're iterating on it, uh, but they haven't made it, right? And there's also things under the wraps. So that's that's my takeaway. But yeah, I, it was really good. Oh, I guess the other thing is, is their long-term um, operating margin that they're talking about, at least you know, if you think about it on an EBIT, EBIT basis, I guess. Um, they're already hitting those margins that they had thought that they're going to hit in maybe a few years down the lane. So, mm. yeah. Interesting. I think, uh, yeah, I think you made a comment in there about <clears throat> about the price earnings ratio and basically how, you know, leverage kicks in. Uh, I think it's really important for investors to remind themselves that in when a business is hitting operating leverage, when it's hitting that inflection point, um, it's very, very hard to try and get any type of read on the PE ratio um, as like a useful, like an overly useful metric. Maybe in like mature stage businesses, it's pretty, um, it's more reliable, I would say. But okay. even then, I mean, there's so much, there's so much that goes between the top of the uh, income statement right down to earnings before you ca- calculate that PE ratio that it's very difficult um, metric to get a handle on. And I think for a business like moving as fast as Tesla, um, I think if, like if you plugged it into Google, as I just did, you look and you see, oh, it says 468 times earnings. And you're like, well, that's a, how can anyone that's sane buy this company? But then if you think about how fast the operating leverage is kicking in, how much of that new revenue is dropping to the bottom line and all the optionality that you just talked about, like we didn't even talk about the non-automotive stuff. Um, yeah. So yeah, fascinating, fascinating company and um, one heck of a result. And I bet you're happy. Um, I, I am. Well, I'm happy for. I'm happy for another short term. When usually there's a sell the news that happens with Tesla. I think for the last several quarters is like you know the stock goes up when the the production numbers come out because the production numbers come out beforehand, right? They come out on, on, mm. on the first or second of the end of the quarter, just the end of the, the couple of days after the end of the quarter, and then so the stock goes up and then it goes down. But today. The stock actually went up. Uh, you know, I think it's, it's closing in on some record highs. So I'm happy about that because I own the stock. I want it to be a record high. Because <laughs> I own plenty of it. I don't need to, I don't need to buy more. So that's okay for me. <laughs> I feel for everybody else. Well, as long as, long as it uh, as long as it keeps going going up, all right. You know, one day yeah. you can handle, but uh, everything seems to be going pretty well. So. Um, that's great, man. And good on you for backing your convictions. It's oftentimes the most difficult one. The, the biggest payoffs, as in, you know, Tesla for you in this case, are oftentimes the ones that are the most scary for investors and most there's the most friction in that um, that holding. So I think, yeah, yeah all, all credit to you for continuing to hold. That's um, actually a good, next, that's a good, that's a good comment because, you know, those are the hardest ones that the, the, the investments which have friction or noise or you know a lot of debate actually those can be really interesting ones yeah i like that yeah absolutely and you know we saw that with afterpay here in australia you see it all around the world with many different companies so um yeah fascinating i've actually um to bring it back to australia now um there is a company here um which 
I thought would be worth talking about. It, it kind of made headlines this week um, and definitely it was very popular in FinTwit. So I'm going to see if I can share my screen uh, with you again, which is this one just here. And this is Magellan Financial Group. So uh, you know Magellan, I know Magellan, but for those that don't, uh, Magellan is um, basically a, a funds management business that has in the last, say, two to three years transitioned out of funds management um, where it has like kind of led the pack, um, it's fair to say. And now it's transitioning into um, kind of like what was called principal investments um, and kind of just different positions. So what I mean by that is instead of just taking people's money, charging a, a percentage clip on the ticket, um, they're now diversifying that side of the funds management business, but also diversifying into holding stakes in other companies. And I think the big one um, that's on most people's mind is a company called Baron Joey, um, which you can see in the, the AGM address, which came out this week. Um, and basically the, the, the founder, Hamish Douglas, co-founder Hamish Douglas basically came out and said, you know, it's, it's profitable. And um, most people didn't think it'd be profitable right now. So um, it's actually a really interesting business. So if you've been on an analyst call here in Australia, as I have been on many recently, there's oftentimes a Baron Joey analyst on there. And I, I feel like it's almost like a requirement for them to ask a question on a call just to get their name out there. But um, they've got a series of these smaller investments. So um, Guzman Y Gomez, uh, you can see them at $103 million investment there, $23 million into FinClear, which I believe has since raised capital at something like four times that amount. Um, and so, and here's Baron Joey down the bottom here. So it's basically an investment bank. Hamish Douglas, who, as I said, is the co-founder prior to uh, Magellan, he actually was an investment banker. So he's kind of got a deep experience in this, in this market. And um, yeah, they basically come out here and said profitable for the three months of FY22, which caught a lot of people off guard. Um, and obviously, if you think about the likes of uh, Macquarie here in Australia, or even just some of the big accounting firms and the amount of uh, value creation that they absorb, um, kind of being at the center of the hourglass um, of that, that is finance. Um, this is a big opportunity for Magellan to diversify outside their, their core business, which is uh, traditional funds management. And traditionally, that has only been in the global side of the business, this global equities franchise. Um, so you can see the, the other thing here, I would say, is that um, they've outlined five key areas of growth um, for the business. And many of these businesses, while small, are starting to gain some meaningful traction. So they bought early funds management, with, which obviously came with some great investors like John Sevier. Um, Gerald Stack, who leads the global infrastructure unit inside of Magellan, has been there the, the whole time, and I believe the whole time. And um, that business is a huge multi-billion dollar business as well that's still got some potential. And um, I guess at the end of the day, there's been a lot of criticism thrown at Magellan recently because of their underperformance relative to the benchmark, um, because Magellan makes money based on you know, asset management fees, but also performance fees. It's important to remember that, I think it's important to remember that Magellan was basically founded on the premise that you can protect some of the downside, but also enjoy the upside of markets. And that's what every fund manager says, right? But they actually have stuck to their guns for the most part. So they've said here that you know, their global fund, which is where they make the majority of their money, has protected to the downside considerably um, by saying it's only been exposed to 45.3% of the market downside, and yet it's met its 9% hurdle rate every year. Um, so I, all in all, this, this presentation um, and this update from management really um, just kind of 
pleased the market. I think shares rose about 6%, I believe, off the top of my head. Um, and Magellan still has many ways that it can grow. It's still extremely, extremely profitable, as are all fund management businesses at scale. Uh, it's just that the performance fees um, haven't been as fruitful. And I think when you're valuing a company like Magellan, I, I think that the first point of call is maybe to maybe to be a bit more conservative and try and value the core business without the performance fees and then try and value some of this optionality separately to see what your downside could be. Um, funds management can be a fickle business. You can Clients can pull their money out of Magellan and go across the street to another funds fund manager. But based on everything that's been said so far, it seems positive. Um, and, you know, we've... With the, the writing, this probably my final point is that the writing has been on the wall a little bit for Magellan in the sense that it's already, if not the biggest, it's one of the biggest um, fund managers here in Australia. And the global side of the business um, in particular makes up the majority of this hundred plus billion dollars of funds under management. And so there is a limit for funds when you get too big, it becomes harder to manage, as Buffett's always said. So Magellan is a, is a beast now. Um, but they still have all of these green shoots emerging. So it's a really interesting business. Um, it's one I'm actually taking a look at now. And um, the guys on, on Rust Media have actually, have actually written a fair bit about it. Like here's Locke's article on Rust Media. So uh, I'd encourage people to go and listen to more of that or even have a look at the, um, the AGM themselves. So that's Magellan. It's on the ASX under the ticket code MFG. I think it's, um, it's offering a dividend. It pays out the majority of its earnings as dividends. Funds under management, thanks to market influence and you know, still getting inflows. Um, the business is still growing. So the core business and it's got all this optionality in it. So it's a really interesting business with a fully frank dividend. And I think in Australia, it's pretty hard to find things, something that's reasonably valued. I think if you took the, the, the point between AGMs, I think shares were down 36% year over year. So meanwhile, it's still as profitable as ever. So really interesting business. Maybe not quite the upside of Tesla, but um Still a really interesting business that's found to run. So I like it. Oh, one question about Magellan. So um, what? how much do you rate the um, key, key man risk here? Like, I mean, Hamish is like the big name. He's very famous. He's well-known. A lot of attraction to Hamish, right? Um, mm. What if he decides to walk? I mean, someday he would decide to walk, I would assume. Yeah, I mean, he could do what Kurt Nelson did at, uh, has done at Platinum, which is, I think if you go, at least last time I checked, if you go on the Platinum website, it still says Kurt Nelson um, analyst on the on the website. I don't know if that's um, a placeholder or not. But um, yeah, I mean, I think he's still quite a bit away from that. And I think it's an interesting point that you bring up because I think at Magellan, he's done a really good job of gathering really smart people um, that may not necessarily want the limelight, but also um, are incredibly skilled and can take the reins over time. So like if you, I think they've got better at first building that and then now starting to give those people a bit more um, exposure. Like, so if you look here, a bit more responsibility, I should say. So Hamish is still one of three portfolio managers in the global equity strategy. Um, but if you come down into these five key growth areas that I outlined, you can actually see um, they've made they've made an emphasis um, of showing you who is leading these business units. And I think that's an attempt by them to try and show you, you know, there are many talented people within this business. Um, so, you know, here's, here's Early Funds Management, for example, John Sevier, Matt Williams, and Emma Fisher. 
Um, and you keep coming down and there's more Paul Allen, Dom Giuliano, um, and then you got the core series, which is more of a systematic approach to investing um, and so on and so forth. And they only have non-core stakes on those, those new, not non-core, but uh, they're not like um, running the companies that, of those, those investments that they're making in new businesses. So there's no kind of onus there on Hamish himself. Um, so overall, I'd say, yes, I agree because he's kind of the talisman of the, the company and people know Magellan with Hamish. Um, but I'd say that they're getting better at that. And like on the infrastructure side, Gerald Stack's been there a very long time, if not the whole time. And um, I've seen him present and, and do all those types of things. And it's excellent. He's excellent. So um, it's less of a concern for me now than it was in the past, if that makes sense. Yeah. Cool. Like it. Cool. Cool. So that's Magellan, MFG on the ASX. There is... Uh, and another interesting company that we wanted to talk about, which I don't know much, I don't know much about it because I am not a user of the platform, nor do I follow the company that closely. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm hoping you can fill me and potentially a lot of listeners in here, um, which is um, quite a provocative uh, note we've got here in the the run sheet, which is is the cookie crumbling? Snapchat's results. So I'm interested to hear what you've got to say on Snapchat. Well, I'll, I'll share the screen in a second. Uh, but this is not a company that I use either. I'm not on Snapchat. My, my actually, my daughter uses it a lot. Apparently, all the kids love using um, Snapchat. So uh, the, the cookie crumbling is sort of a metaphorical way of saying that you know there's a lot of changes happening in the cookie world, right? So first-party cookies are okay, but third-party cookies that are are widely used for tracking. You know, uh, so, you know, Owen wants to buy those boots from the Thursday Boots Company. So he visited the site, but he didn't buy it. Then he goes to some other site and then he goes to some other site. And now all of a sudden, all the sites are showing him the Thursday Thursday Boot Company's ads. Well, that's basically retargeting. And that happens by Mm -hmm. having these little cookies that follow you around. Um, So Apple has basically made a change. And so this is an iOS change where... Every app now pops up that says, you know, do you want, uh, do you allow us to track you? Uh, and you, users have the choice of saying no. <laughs> and, and that has, I think, a big impact on uh, sort of how retargeting would work. So basically, third party cookies are becoming difficult. So, um, you know, and various people had estimates of how this is going to impact their business, especially those businesses that are free services where, you know, free means you are the product. Um, So, you know, they've all had challenges with the new system, right? So Snapchat, actually- Google, Facebook, Instagram, um, TikTok, all these, all these. All these, all these free services. Uh, pin interest mm. and and the likes, right? But yep. but but the thing is that this change really, I think, uh, um, affects some companies disproportionately versus others, right? So a company like Google, because you you know you log into like I mean YouTube, you log into Gmail, you log into so many different Google services, right? So it's like Google has got a lot of first party data on individuals. And, you know, you could argue that Facebook has got a lot of first-party data. So it's probably not as, but it still impacts their ability to retarget because they don't see that information of you being on other places. But, you know, uh, some companies are worse off than others, right? So what, what was interesting for me is um, if you look at the results for, for, pin, uh, for Snapchat, it's actually a pretty solid results. I'm going to try to sc- share my screen. Let me see. 
if I can, I think I can. Boom. Okay, sure. All right. I can so, see it. Okay. So if you look at this, so daily active users, uh, these are people who log in every day for a certain amount of time. That increased 23% year over year to 306 million. Now that's pretty solid. Uh, revenue on the other hand increased 57%, right? So lots mm. of ads going through the system to like a billion dollars, right? That is pretty, pretty good. Um, and if you look at the adjusted EBITDA number, then you know that improved 200%. So there's there's operating margin like this leverage in this business generated you know a small 52 million free cash flow um, in the quarter as well. So I mean that is all great, right? Uh, and and then uh, you know Ivan uh, Spiegel basically says you know I'll highlight this: we're not operating at the scale necessary to na navigate significant headwinds, and this is what destroyed the shares after hours. Uh, the shares were at one point down 30 percent or something. I think they recovered a bit, including changes to iOS platform that's impacting the way advertising is targeted, measured, and optimized. Right. So that, that, that really, you know, that actually pulled Facebook shares down, pulled Google shares down, uh, pulled a bunch of other uh, ad tech shares down as well. So I think that's interesting. What I do, do think is funny is this part, as well as global supply chain issues, blah, 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 blah. I mean, you know, come on. I get it that the people who advertise probably are impacted by supply chain and maybe they, you know, but it, supply chain is never going to stop Coca-Cola from advertising. <laughs> Mm. You know, Coca-Cola is going to still advertise. So I don't know who these people are that are, uh, you know, are not going to advertise because of supply chain. And Ford is going to advertise whether or not they produce enough cars. <laughs> They're going to advertise. That's what they do. There is an advertising budget. And I, I haven't seen advertising budgets come down. So this, I think, is, is odd. But I think people are spooked about this change. And this is really, I think, still early stages of the journey uh, in terms of how, how ad platforms are going to shift. Um, so that's, I think, the real things. If you know, I, th I expect substantial volatility in any business that is dependent on sort of iOS apps and ads and usage on iOS platform and ads. And we know that while iOS has a small, relatively small share of the global market, fifteen percent, maybe fifteen twenty percent or whatever it is, um, versus say Android, it, it generates actually the lion's share of you know the profits and and things like that because that's you know. Mostly well-to-do people use the iOS platform. Like I said, mostly there are people, of course, well-to-do people who use Android, but I mean, that's how it has. Yeah, it's out. a generalization. That's fair. It's yep. a generalization. Yep. So that, that's really it. So I think this is like, you know, like, the other thing I want to talk about here is a little bit about valuation. So this company before the drop today was worth $120 billion. So you think about it this way, generating billion dollars of revenue, uh, ad revenue, let's say. Um, most of it is ad revenue. They have some other things that they're doing in augmented uh, reality in terms of they have some glasses. They they produce AR glasses and things like that that you can buy. But you a billion dollar run rate, so let's call it like you know four billion annually, and you're growing at say fifty percent. That's pretty solid. Uh, but that that mark in the company is now valued at one hundred twenty billion. It's not really valued at one hundred twenty billion, I guess, tomorrow when market opens. But that's something to keep in mind. I mean, that seems like a pretty high valuation, at least on the surface of it. But maybe you know, it's justifiable if the revenue can continue growing. So I think that's what the market is basically saying as well. We don't know what this change is going to do. Uh, we were happy with this valu valuation because of your growth and run rate. But if your growth is going to slow down because of these changes in other platforms, um, the final thing I, I want to 
you mentioned, use this as an illustrative example is, you know, and this is not here, not there, but something to think about is companies that control primary technology. So if you think about, you know, Google controls the Android platform, has search is a, almost like you can think of this as a primary technology. Companies that control primary technology have a lot more sway than companies that don't, right? So if you, if you mm. build on top of stuff, uh, you're at the mercy of those people who build the primary technology, right? And then a great example, you talked about M1. I mean, you know, today Apple is making better chips than Intel and potentially better GPUs than NVIDIA. Well, that's because they control the underlying OS and therefore they can build the hardware and the software that works together. So a lot of companies want to, and this is one of the reasons why, you know, Facebook wants to build hardware and, um, you know, Google has its own chips. It's basically that, that underlying hardware software integration and just having more control over primary technology. So that's, mm. those are things I don't want to talk about from Snap's point of view. Can I just ask a question? Do you, do you have the gross margin in front of you there? Or do you know? Oh, I think if we can find it very quickly, let's see, we should, there should be a financial statement at the end of this thing. Uh, gross margin should be relatively high. Let's see, come on. There we go. The reason I ask is that sometimes with these platforms, it's interesting to look at how they scale because some of them build on different infrastructure underneath. Some of them yeah. manage their own infrastructure. Some of so they spend there, and some of them sometimes there isn't. So yeah, so, yeah I mean, we have it here, right? So it's a billion dollars of which cost revenue is about four hundred million, right? That's pretty high, at mm. roughly sixty percent. It's pretty good. Yeah, roughly, yeah. a little bit less than that. Mm. Um, so, I mean, they're paying a fair bit to, I guess, cloud providers for hosting and things like that. So it's not software like 80%. Yeah, no, it's not. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. The other question was, and this actually is on the back of, uh, Vinoth has asked something in the live chat here. Um, he's basically asked, do you see others following Apple in making their own chip? Yes, yeah, so we sort of answered that. Yes, uh, Google already has its, you know, Tensor chip chips, and I think uh, um, Facebook has its own. So I think uh, Apple makes, uh, sorry, Tesla makes its own. Uh, so it's like basically they design the chips. They don't build it. Then it's built by third-party foundries like you know TMC or Samsung. Um, and they, most of them are built using ARM's IP. So ARM is like sort of the critical layer that's used there. Um, so yes, but I think the the interesting thing, I think with building, going down the stack, so doing going down the stack as in from, you know, developing applications is up the stack, right? Then writing the OS is lower, right? So you build applications on top of the OS, OS being the operating system, and then, Going further down is the hardware, right? So it's, it's the hardware on which the OS runs. That's the uh, the chips, right? Going down the stack is relatively easy, but building expertise to beat out people like Intel takes decades, right? It's not easy and not straightforward. And um, you know, you, you see simple things like you know the new Pixel phones are out, uh, and maybe they compare their comparable performance in terms of the say the Apple's uh, you know 13 Pro Max whatever. Uh, but the interesting thing would be that Apple will get similar performance out using say less memory and less space than somebody else because you know they just good at optimization things. And and that probably doesn't matter for a smartphone, but it probably matters a lot when you're designing wearables. Right. So as the form factor changes, these the ability to design smaller, faster, cheaper, highly efficient 
it just becomes it's it's a skill of its own, right? And I think in, in mm-hmm. that game, Apple is just miles and miles ahead of almost anyone. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's I think you know that's my observation at least. Yeah, I think we but, saw that um, on demonstration this week when the company unveiled its um, M1 Max. Um, yeah. So basically, you know, just a huge, huge CPU GPU combo um, that's just blown everything out of the water, and they can do that when it's on a battery or when it's in charge. So, yeah, I think we're starting to see the fruits of that. I think this was this round of MacBook or just upgrades for me was a, a super strong insight into how powerful they can make the platform from their own chips all the way up. So, really interesting. Um, another company that. Well, it's actually worth noting, I should say just on the back of this, because I did actually take a look at the Snapchat stock price after after knowing that we're going to talk about it. And it's just since 2020, it's been, you know, happy days, everything's been going really well. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, it's down 21% after hours. So I think that's a really interesting thing. But the other one that um, I guess has copped a bit of, not criticism, but it's been a bit volatile until recently was Netflix. Um, But it's just now it's hit an all-time high um, after a rally in the past few weeks. And I saw um, that it's basically come out with results for the third quarter and, and um, they're pretty strong. They seem pretty strong. But year-on-year growth of, of 16% in revenue, operating income of $1.7 billion for the quarter, 23% margin, uh, a net income of $1.4 billion, So it gives us diluted earnings per share of $3.19. Um, memberships, importantly, up 9.4%, which is really strong, I would say, you know, coming out of COVID. Um, really, really strong numbers here. So, um, I guess I'm just interested to get your thoughts on this. Um, you know, how did you how did you did you have any kind of expectations for this, and um, what did you pull out of it? Yeah, so I I thought they were exactly like you. I thought they're really strong. And what I think is interesting is that you know a lot of content is coming online, right? You know, like Squid Games is probably a hit and things like that. So. As yeah. more content comes online, and this is like a hit machine sort of thing, right? With the streaming players, the, the more sort of content you produce that results in those social media, what to call a chat equivalent, whatever you want to call it, the more subscribers join. And, um, you know, that's been the Netflix uh, story. And then they're really executing that well. well. The only thing that I find, I guess, what is worth thinking about is, I guess, this is this is a tech lull sort of thing, is Netflix has been making some forays into games and, yeah. you know, gaming and, you know, they're buying some uh, storybook franchises. So, so they must have something else that they are in, interested in that they are looking to do with the content that they're building and the IP that they've got. Um, because if I just think about streaming, right, the streaming then looks like it's, you know, the analogy would be, it's like an airport, right? Whatever you do, it's ultimately basically got a runway and there is a huge debt <laughs> that facilitates the, the the infrastructure called the airport. Because uh, in Netflix's case, it's basically, it's, it's, it's revisiting cable TV in another way, right? Because you've got all this debt for content that they're taking on. Uh, so while it's producing net income, but you know, it, it has got a lot of debt. <laughs> that it's building and building and building. So it really needs, at some point, it would need to do something that makes it more tech and less media <laughs> because it does have a tech-like multiple, um, right? And it does, so yeah. I don't know. Yeah, so that's that's the thing I always think about now because now that we are past that sort of the very high 
sort of, you know, growth. I mean, how much is, you know, there's still a lot of runway here, but you're going to grow at, you know, 15% from here or so, you know, roughly you'll be adding that kind of, you know, numbers growth, right? And there's only so much you can push in terms of price, um, you know, and so that's what I think is, is interesting for Netflix, but there's no other special takeaway other than that. I think you covered almost everything. Mm. It's always interesting to see what's most popular on the, on the platform. So the top 10 uh, series um, by the number of accounts watching at least two minutes in the first 28 days. Here we go. We've got Bridgerton season one, Lupin part one, The Witcher, uh, Sex okay. Life, Stranger Things 3, Money Heist, Tiger King, The Queen's Gambit, Sweet Tooth, and Emily in Paris. Um, I actually haven't watched many of those. Tiger King I definitely have. So um, mm. I thought Squid Game would be giving it a, a run for its money, but uh, maybe not. Hey, maybe, that's a just, maybe that's an acquired taste, and it's probably, let's be honest, it's R18. So. <laughs> yeah, I would think that that would show up in next, wouldn't it show up in the next one? Yeah, I'm um, guessing because it probably didn't go viral until after the quarter. Yeah, yeah, that's what yeah. I'm thinking too. But yeah, you're right. Like a lot of these things, you know, I haven't, I don't even know what they are. But I mean, those hours watched are pretty high. <laughs> yeah, they're huge. Um, so here we go. Squid Games. It's they say in the the, the quarterly update. Squid Games popularity is truly amazing. This show has been ranked as our number one program in 94 countries, including the US. So, yeah, more than 42 billion views across like TikTok and. Um, a bunch of other stuff too. So uh, really fascinating stuff. Uh, and you can see the growth rates, um, you know, year over year. They do provide this kind of cohort. Um, they can, well, they kind of show you year on year, like how we're going with net ads. Um, and you can see that it is, other than with, with COVID, this year is slowing down a little bit, but it's still growing quite a bit. And that's the key point, I think, is it's just got to adjust to that, right? Yeah, yeah, that's um, right. Yeah. Yeah, and it's then, not a business and, and, that I own shares in, but it's fascinating. Yeah, then one of the things that talk about in the letter, they're actually one of the great things they do. They produce a very good shareholder letter, and then they do talk about you know uh, testing games in select countries. So mm. um, I, I think this is the thing to watch. Is this you know the, you know the Netflix 4.0 in terms of evolution, right? So you know they went from the DVD shipping the DVD to actually streaming to making their own content to making you know content of various kinds to now. Um, you know, um, going international to then now doing games. So I think this this might be sort of the interesting thing to watch. Yeah, yeah, indeed. I think their their culture, their culture deck, which you can still get online, you can see that it's really enabled them. Um, if you if you read read Hastings' book, and you realize that the way they built the team and the culture at um, Netflix is such that the culture is what has allowed them to persevere and to transition. From 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 you know mail out DVDs to to streaming and to deal and, and mobile and deal with all of these challenges over the years. So uh, it's a really interesting facet of an enduring business model. So um, yeah, great stuff. Okay, we're going to switch gears here right before the end, which is we're just going to talk um, for a little bit about interest rates, which is I think the first thing you and I ever talked about on the show uh, when we started doing these weekly shows is basically interest rates and how that impacts investing um, and. I just want to hand it over to you here to throw it to me to kick things off. But um, interest rates, are they rising? And I guess what's the impact of, of rising rates? Yeah, and if people can hear uh, 
um, uh, some lawn mowing activity happening in the background, then I apologize. Uh, <laughs> no, it's good. It's so fun on my end. <laughs> okay. So there's no problem. Then I can just keep talking. I can just ignore the noise that's coming through my head. Yes. <laughs> um, giving me a spin. So interest rates, I mean, there's a lot of chat about interest rate inflation. Uh, what I thought was interesting, I think we didn't talk about this, was the Bank of uh, New Zealand or the Reserve Bank of New Zealand increased rates. Uh, because they have a hot housing market and they, you know, the fruits and vegetables are expensive and everything is, is you know, is up on the rise. Um, and they, they think that, you know, maybe they need to cool down the economy a bit. And, and the thing with interest rate is interest rates are sort of the discount rate that, you know, I look at or a part of the discount rate, right? So, I mean, how much more do you want returns from equity because you're taking some risk, right? If you can get 5% returns from uh, by putting your money in, in a term deposit, then you would ask for at least another 6 7% more from for putting your money on the equities, right? But if you are um, you know, getting going to get like close to zero <laughs> for putting your term deposit in, uh, you know, then you'd probably be happy maybe with a 7% return from the stock markets. It has, so, so, and then the discount rate matters because that ultimately matters in terms of the valuation, right? So it basically pulls the valuation up or down that you'd be willing to pay. And of course, we should all think about long-term, long-term what the average sort of interest rate is going to be. Um, and that sort of should decide how, our, uh, how much we're paying for equity. But so uh, there's been, you know, uh, a lot of projections about interest rates going up. Uh, the, one of the first ones to pull the trigger is New Zealand. So the question is, is, is New Zealand leading uh, the pack Right, and uh, we know that the Fed, U.S. Federal Reserve, is looking to increase interest rates sooner than they thought. Uh, it's again partly driven by the inflation print that has been there. Although I would argue that a lot of the things that we are seeing in inflation are one-time, because you know if fuel prices have gone up because people were not driving enough, and now we're sort of still trying to get back to pre-COVID levels, then that's that's one-time effect. The same thing with supply chain distortions, the supply chain distortions are one time. In Australia, it seems, uh, you know, uh, free childcare is a contributor to inflation because now it's no longer free. So therefore, you know, the childcare is something that people are having to spend on. Well, that's causing inflation. But is that, you know, is that price going to go from zero to however much, you know, $30 or $40 you're paying per hour or $50 you're paying per hour? It's not going to become zero to 50 to 100. You know what I mean? Like, so a lot of those things seem to be one time but but yeah but there's a direct relationship to uh there's there is a relationship to valuation so mm. and does it concern you i mean talking to people around me you know made a comment at the top of the show there about fuel prices being dollar 85 which is very high for australia um does, does does this talk concern you at all no not really because i mean again as i said for a long-term investor you really have to take the view of how things are going to look, say, 10, 20 years, right? And it's very hard to make a prediction, but, you know, I've been of the view that we are technically in a deflationary type of world because of technology and uh, globalization, right? Those sort of push prices down. Um, mm. So I don't think rates are going to go up that much, but they will go up. So I always factor that in a bit. And then I sort of try to invest in growth, you know, I've invested in growth businesses that have long uh, runways and that have large TAMs. And then I try to invest in those businesses that have pricing power. Like, you know, say if it's a Tesla, they're just going to increase the prices to offset some of that, or they're going to squeeze the suppliers as much as they can uh, to keep, you know, the prices rolling in, which 
you know, Tesla has done or an Apple will do, uh, right? So uh, I think you're going to find those businesses that are have more control in their pricing because, you know, and those businesses that have long runways. And then I think all of these other things sort of become a bit of a noise, uh, you know, but I guess as, you know, again, there's going to be short-term volatility that there's nothing, I guess, we can do anything about. Mm. I'm just looking at the 10-year Australian um, bond yields, and they have gone up a bit recently from you know, $1.20, not $1.20, to say $1.65, $1.8 recently. And this is a pretty quick succession. Um, and generally, these long-term yields are indicative of where kind of investors or the market sees um, the pressure coming from when it when it sees it. Um, we saw this similar we saw this similar kind of rhetoric at the beginning of the year and late last year when the, the prints were really high, the inflation prints were really high um, as, as the world was coming out of um, Australia might not have been coming out of lockdowns, but the world was. And when we saw some really interesting figures there. Um, from, so from where I see it, I'm sorry, go on. Uh, just one quick clarification, right? So the one of the things that is important, I think you know, this is a, maybe an academic point, but the the bond yields that you're looking at and I am looking at are sort of the secondary market bond yields, right? So this is basically yeah. the bonds that the governments have issued that are trading freely and that are kind of indicative of what the cost of borrowing might be for a future bond that the Australian government might sell or the RBA might sell. Now, what I think, what I find funny though, is when a government sells the bond, there are people who are nabbing, you know, snapping these things off with for negative yield. <laughs> so the, the yield goes up in the real world or in the, in the secondary market. But when, you know, when someone is selling it, oh, yeah, yeah, I want it. I will pay you money to take, you know, for you to keep my money. So I really don't get it. But, you know, uh, anyways, that's just a side point. Well, yeah, I guess in the global, if you're allocating to Australia in the global perspective, maybe that's a, still a pretty tempting bet considered, considering what you have overseas. So maybe that that's something too. I, I, yeah, I, I broadly, I just think it's it's pretty hard to see markets coping with, as you said, like a, a rapid increase in, in any types of rates. Um, and the longer term average um is still quite a way above where we are today, but to even get back to that here in Australia, and I'm sure it's the case in New Zealand, would be very difficult um, to do relatively shortly. So um, I think this brings in the whole conversation around modern monetary theory, which is probably a whole nother podcast, but it's just an interesting thing to see that our friends across the water are already raising rates. Um, I think the RBA has been kind of a bit more conservative with its, with its forecast and with its outlook to say, you know, everything's okay. Um, you know, business as usual for now. Um, so we'll see. We'll see where it goes from there. I'm just conscious of time because we only got a couple more minutes. But um, I just thought I'd show you this. I actually received this um, during the call. Um, I don't know if you can see that, but my order is ready. <laughs> Yay! So Another. I can go and pick up my Starlink satellite internet. <laughs> there we go. I. I. It looks like I'm. Um, about to become a Starlink owner. So I'm very, very proud of that fact. And I can join the club, mate. So so here's a problem. Next time when you have the Starlink working and if the Zoom is not working, then we'll have to decide who to blame, right? We can't blame Starlink because that's <laughs> fantastic. So we'll blame Zoom. <laughs> that sounds good because I don't own shares in Zoom. 
Uh, yeah, actually, I don't know anything SpaceX either, but uh, yeah, but, wonderful. Yeah, but yeah, we'll blame them. <laughs> yeah, um, mate, it's always a pleasure to catch up and chat like this. So, if people want to find out more about what you're doing at Seven Investing, where can they go to 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 get your recommendations? There's one yeah, coming out soon. It's one coming up soon. Yeah, exciting. Yeah, exciting. So, uh, seveninvesting.com forward slash subscribe. Use the RAS code. Uh, you get a bit of discount on the first month. Um, yeah. And if not, just talk to us on Twitter. If you know, yeah, there's no pressure, no pressure. <laughs> no, no pressure. We are um, very much active on Twitter, Anirban and I. So if you do want to say g'day, you can, and you can recommend topics for future episodes. Um, normally we'd get on tw- Twitter and bang the drum during the session, but uh, we didn't today. But uh, yeah, if you have any feedback for us, we'd love to find you on Twitter. And uh, you can find out more about what I'm doing at www.rask.com.au. So, mate, as always, it's a, it's a pleasure to come on and talk investing with you. Pleasure always mine. Thanks for having me.